Hello, and welcome to the This Should Be Free edition of Sleep Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. We are a free podcast. You can get us anywhere that good podcasts are found, but we are not totally independent and free in a way that Wikipedia is, because Wikipedia doesn't even have ads. I'm afraid we do have ads. So that's the difference between us and Wikipedia. We are going to have a deep dive into exactly how Wikipedia works and what it does with Catherine Ma. Great to be here. Catherine Ma is in for your offer. You just got off a plane from somewhere. You're about to get on a plane to somewhere else. But in between planes, Catherine's made it to Brooklyn, New York to record. This is going to be an awesome episode of Slate Money, all about the information economy. We're going to talk about Wikipedia, obviously. We are also going to be talking about like the anti-Wikipedia, which is Elsevier, which is this big Dutch company that makes a whole bunch of money off research that was all funded by taxpayers. And how dare they? And we are going to talk about crypto wars, which is the inevitable consequence of the Facebook pivot to privacy. Do we believe that Facebook is going to pivot to privacy? Emily is shaking no. her head. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. So, oh, and I should make sure that we introduce everyone else. Yes, yes, I am, yes, yes. I am Felix Salmon of Axios. Emily Peck is from... Huffington Post. Huffington Post. And Anna Shemansky is... I'm Anna Shemansky. It's just Anna Shemansky. <laughs> she works for a mysterious company that we cannot reveal. Yes. She doesn't even tell us. She's, she's an international woman of mystery. <laughs> <laughs> but we are very happy to have Anna here. And all of that is coming up on Slate Money. So, so Catherine, you, you, are, you literally know everything in the world because you run the organization which, is in, which encapsulates and incorporates all of the information in the world, and you are the smartest person in the world. I cheat. I look it up on Wikipedia. You look it up on Wikipedia. Um, but it's there. And I remember what my favorite... Um, story about the, you know, the Stripe, the Collison brothers? Mm-hmm. Um, my, my favorite Collison story is that before they founded Stripe, they got like the seed money to found Stripe by doing an app. And the app was all of Wikipedia in an app. But isn't that just Wikipedia? Well, this was kind of before data plans and everyone had like the internet oh, on their phone. Oh, they had like an offline Wikipedia. And so you, do- you downloaded this enormous app and it cost like $10. And I did it because... Um, one of the Carlson brothers made me. Um, I I downloaded all of Wikipedia onto my phone, and it was just sitting there on my phone, and you could look stuff up even if you didn't have an internet connection. That's actually, we have that app, and it's really popular in many parts of the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because not everyone has stable internet. And you don't need to pay $10 for it anymore. That's, that's right. We, we make it free, actually. It's kind of our jam. Um, so, yeah, so tell me what you are up to these days, because... Um, I think a lot of people who use Wikipedia, a lot of slate money people who use Wikipedia will have looked at it and say, well, it looks pretty much the same as it did sort of five or 10 years ago. Uh, I mean, from a user experience standpoint, it looks kind of the same. It looks like an encyclopedia. We like keeping it like that. But there's actually a reason for that, too, because not everybody, as we just said, has access to a high quality Internet connection. And so Wikipedia is really fast no matter where you are in the world. But on the back end, things have changed a lot. And on the content side, even if the sort of English language Wikipedia has been has kind of reached a steady state, like the other languages and stuff like that are growing. 
They all are growing. Wikipedia adds thousands of articles every single day. It's 50 million articles these days. Uh, English Wikipedia is the largest. It's five and a half million articles. But then other Wikipedias are really large. Swedish is a surprise win. Uh, it's up there in the millions. You've got German, Spanish, French, all the sort of big European languages. And then a lot of the languages from outside of North America and uh, North America and Europe continue to grow at a pretty rapid clip. Although isn't this so one of the issues with Wikipedia, though, is that if you look at the number of people who edit from, say, the Netherlands, it's more than all of the people who edit from the entire continent of Africa? Yeah, that's right. In fact, that is a huge part of what the Wikimedia Foundation focuses on. Really, our work is split up into hosting the websites. We actually still host everything ourselves. We've got our own engineers. We don't use the cloud infrastructure. We have our own. Um, and then the remainder of what we do is really about trying to support and expand Wikipedia's use in other places in which what we call our emerging communities, places in which Wikipedia has not always been as popular, languages in which are not as well developed, communities that don't necessarily contribute. So the Netherlands is, what, 16 million people, and it has an incredibly popular Wikipedia, Dutch Wikipedia, and something like less than 2% of uh, African or contributors come from the entire African continent. So there's clearly just huge swaths of the world that are missing. So this idea that Wikipedia is in any way steady state actually feels just like there's no way that's possible. Mm -hmm. So the, the big growth is in the future in terms of like just the percentage of the population of the world that you're going to reach. You're you're good on the Dutch, but not so much on like the... We're very good on the Dutch. No, we love the Dutch. Um, no, if you look at most of Wikipedia across like mo sort of the mature markets that, uh, such as North America and Europe, we're at about 85, 90% brand awareness. And if you go into places like Mexico, it's more like 45%. Nigeria, it's more like 35%. And so one of our big focuses is like, how do we actually engage communities around tools like an encyclopedia if you actually don't your culture doesn't have a concept of a bunch of books sitting on a shelf. Um, if you haven't, don't have anything in terms of a, not, not anything, but if you have more of an oral tradition rather than a written tradition, what does it mean to be able to participate and see yourself reflected in Wikipedia? Uh, so I think that that's a, that's a major growth area for us, especially when you consider that by 2100, Africans will make up about 42% of the world's population. So how do you deal with like oral traditions? Do you have a big spoken oral I don't know, Tradition. Like, uh, yeah, is there a way of doing that on Wikipedia? It's an ongoing question. Um, our, this is part of what the Wikimedia Foundation tries to do is invest in people who are looking to solve sort of knowledge problems, right? Epistemological questions about how do you actually think about what a reliable oral tradition looks like as opposed to a reliable source as we think of a published journal article or a published uh, newspaper. And there's a really interesting um, Namibian Wikipedian who talks about how there's a community in Namibia that meets every year and they tell their oral traditions together and then they go away and then they come back the next year to retell those oral traditions in a way that allows the entire community to validate and uh, reaffirm what those traditions are. So there are certainly ways within oral tradition that knowledge is considered reliable. Um, so I think we're interested in what, what that might look like. Is that storytelling? Is that um, being able to cross-reference against other sources, but but it's a nut that we haven't fully cracked. And, and I think this is really interesting about the positive potential of Wikipedia just from its structure, because I think a lot of the criticisms you can make of just like the low number of biographies that are about women, you know, that kind of thing. Unfortunately, that was the case with regular encyclopedias yes, too, exactly right? right? But I feel like now Wikipedia, because it does have these abilities, could 
down the line actually start to change this. That That is our goal is to think about, you know, it's really hard for us to correct the historical record, 2,000 years of people not being written about. Right. <laughs> but it's certainly the case that we can think about what does it mean to actually address gaps in knowledge as we move forward? And how do we measure those gaps? And then how do we think about what does it look like to reframe what knowledge actually means? Um, so those are some of the questions that you get into Wikipedia and you very quite quickly slide down the slippery slope of like epistemological justice. (laughs) How do you go about recruiting new editors and getting more women and getting more Africans and and doing all that? What are what's sort of like the nuts and bolts of doing that? The nuts and bolts, uh, I think there's two different things. There's a social component about how do you do outreach and engage people where they are in the actual community side. And then there's the product side, Mm -hmm. which is how do you make the experience of contributing to Wikipedia and making it accessible to Felix's point about downloading it, where there are people who are not online. How do you actually make that an easier experience? And in the in the non in the product experience, we're looking at like how do you do social pairing in ways that let people know that there's a community out there that you're not contributing sort of into a void. How do you actually reaffirm when someone um, does work that is valuable and useful? How do you give people sort of guide paths into what is valuable and useful? So if you're somebody who wants to edit on grammar, then let's find some grammar for you to fix, right? As opposed to somebody who wants to write an article. So those are the things that we're working on on the back end, and then on the front end, which is the community component of it is we we find the most successful way to get people engaged is to actually do events explain what Wikipedia is, help them meet other people in person, develop relationships that will bring them into the space and recognize that there's sort of a pro-social component to what it is that we do. So we find that the number one way um, to engage women editors is to actually invite them into social spaces to learn how to edit. And in those social spaces, representation of women tends to be about 45% as opposed to the on-wiki space, which is more like around 15 to 20%. And so that seems to be a really positive space for us in terms of having success there and how to now transitioning that into an online capacity. And have you been able to get your um, percentage up of women editors? In the online space, it's hard. It's hard for us to know exactly because we have privacy policies that um, where we don't actually collect any demographic information about you. You don't have to register to edit Wikipedia. All we don't even ask for your email address. You can give it if you want. So there's no data that we have on our users, which is very unusual in this day and age (laughs) relative to the rest of the web. but what we can do through self-sampling and, and the like is we've seen real increases in places that we refer to as like leadership positions, organizing positions in terms of the overall representation of women uh, in our in our spaces. It gets a little complicated, but those numbers have gone up to about 35 percent. So, yeah, we've seen a real improvement there. I have uh, two questions which have come up a lot. Um, one, just as a journalist, there's a big debate. Well, not a big debate. There is a debate in um the journalism community about can you should you link to Wikipedia as a reliable resource? And I get and and um, Emily is Emily's frowning and shaking her head <laughs> and saying, "I mean, I love Wikipedia, but I would never link to it as a as, as a resource." There's definitely a yeah reticence among journalists because. Y- y- it's pretty reliable. I mean, it's it's the entries are very reliable. There is so there is readable, absolutely no doubt. Any journalist who says they don't use Wikipedia as a resource yeah. is lying. They yeah. all do. Then but they then when they link to the information that they find out found out from Wikipedia, they're very hesitant to actually acknowledge. I'll just go to the footnote. Yeah. yeah, whatever the information is, I find I like right. hunt the footnote. And then go to the footnote information just to make sure. Yeah, we're fine with that. Okay, <laughs> but, but, <I laughs> that's, mean, what, that's why they're there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But a lot of the time, like Wikipedia will have a list of you know 
the you know all mm-hmm. of the this or all yeah, of the that and no. those lists don't exist somewhere else and so you're like can I link to this list and and then do you like, link to it Felix I I am pro linking to Wikipedia but I'm I will admit that I'm in the minority on this one I feel like linking to Wikipedia as a journalist if you're doing it as a representation of something like a list this is what like the aggregate information that's available that's one thing if you're using it as Wikipedia says it as a definitive source that you know this number is this I don't I wouldn't advise that and this <laughs> is why not. I think Wikipedia is really interesting because it's in terms of accuracy it's accurate about what people think right now. Oh, exactly. Yes. Right. It, it, in, in a way, it's almost like kind of the markets in a way. It's like the mar- what the market has processed all the information it currently has right now. Does that mean something's properly valued? Well, not necessarily. Mm-hmm. Every but, time someone says, you know, that, you, that Wikipedia is a source of truth, I'm like, no, nah, that's not it. <laughs> We're but, a source but, of but consensus. We're a source to, of what is understood right now based on to people any, who participate. any other source of truth, again, going back to Anna's earlier point, like, it's not like it's less reliable than you know, the Encyclopedia Britannica and, you know, there are errors everywhere. Yeah, I mean, it's it's actually more reliable. And if you think about it as a consensus-oriented project, it reflects the views of everyone who's writing on any particular topic at a time, or not everyone, but representative sample. I think that that is what the power, that's what's so powerful about the model is that not only does it bring all these different sort of diverse inputs together, it also evolves as our understanding of issues evolve. But that's why it's not the truth. And there's nothing static about it. It's sort of takes from the scientific method. As new information comes along, it evolves too. And I think that that's what's actually really exciting and dynamic. Right. And, and, all- I th- and ju- as far as journalists are concerned, they, they're very uncomfortable with the idea of like <laughs> fluid <laughs> epistemics and the idea that the truth is something that evolves over time. And they're like, no, it has to be either like, true or false. <laughs> That's right. Um, Strict constructionists. But, <laughs> but the, other, the other big question I have about Wikipedia is... Um, the way you fund yourselves through donations when, you know, you could put like a tiny little text ad in the corner somewhere and that would pay for the entire project in like a millisecond. What What is the reason why you don't do that? Well, we just don't believe that knowledge should be commoditized in that way. We believe that we exist like a library on the Internet and that there is a space for that, that knowledge is something that we've built collectively together. Certainly it has value. As What I love about it is that you know, the economist, it's non-rivalrous value uh, in the sense that the more people take away from it, it doesn't actually diminish the value for anyone else. So we feel like there should be a space for free information on the web and that that information should be supported by the same people who use it. It's very similar to the way that the knowledge itself is created. It's literally created for people and by people and it's sort of owned by people too because it's all under an open license. We think that's just sort of how it should be. It keeps us independent. It keeps the integrity of the sites really indisputable. um, And it gives people a stake in what Wikipedia actually is. Because not that many people can contribute to Wikipedia in the sense of not necessarily have the time or the resources. But lots of people can make a $3 donation and 7 million people every year do. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So let's talk about the other end of the information spectrum, which is um, extremely expensive information in the form of Elsevier and their publications, because this was in the news, um, Emily, 
you can explain what happened with the University of California? Uh, the University of California dropped Elsevier, who's a big academic publisher, and basically they were paying them uh, uh, several million dollars a year to have access to their journals. Like 11 million. 11, 11, 11, 25% yes. of their annual scholarly publication budget. Um, and, and then Elsevier, th- that contract was coming to an end, and they wanted to raise that amount by 80%. Yes. Um, the profit margins of Elsevier are about 37%. They make a lot of money off um, scholarly journal articles. And um, this is controversial because the research that goes into these scholarly journal articles is government funded. Taxpayers are effectively paying twice, right? They're paying to get the research done. They're paying again to read the research. And there's a growing movement that says, you know, this information should be open source and um, UC is sort of the biggest uh, university system to, to fight back and say, enough's enough. We're not going to pay for this anymore. And what UC said was, we will, the, what they were trying to negotiate before the negotiations fell through was, okay, we will pay you for the journals, but any research that comes out of our system, that needs to be open source and you need mm-hmm. to make that free to everyone. Um, and it looks like Elsevier was kind of okay with that, just so long as they kept on getting that, you know, twenty million dollars a year or whatever it was. And UC was like, no, that's just too much. Mm-hmm. And this is, a, I think, a real bell bellwether. If it can stick, then other university systems are going to probably follow University of California, and this could be a big change for academic publishing. Which, as I'm reading about Elsevier, I'm thinking, oh my god, like the rest of the publishing industry could really. It's the envy of everybody else who's writing articles right now that this company has 37% profit margins. Well, and I think <laughs> that part of the reason for that is because they don't really do anything. I mean, like, I'm all for for-profit companies, but this is a useless for-profit company. Uh-huh. They don't pay the people who do the peer review. They don't pay the people who are writing the articles. They essentially are just, you know, if any, they're bundling things, which yes. is not even how people consume knowledge anymore. They're, it's just this legacy no model. Add. No, there's no value add. And listening to you talk about um, knowledge being free and open, I mean, really, if you just think about it, like, people should be able to access scholarly articles like we're seeing right now with climate change you know we'll talk about david wallace as well as wallace wells's book in an upcoming episode but one of the problems is people don't understand climate change they don't understand what the research has been what scholars are saying and i'm not saying everyone's going to run out and read academic articles about well, actually, climate the- change but maybe i mean they should be free people should understand this stuff so we do a lot of work with open access publishing and one of the things that we hit well not we but external researchers have found is that when an article about a scientific concept is an in an open access journal mm-hmm. it is more likely to be understood by the general public it's also more likely to be in wikipedia and represented effectively in wikipedia mm-hmm. So I don't know whether that's correlation or causation, but there's no question to us in our mind that the end outcome is a positive outcome. If we want the general public to be engaged in matters of scientific debate, inquiry, and sort of new insights, then making that information available feels like a critical step to an informed public. I think without it, you have public health crisis. You have anti-vaxxers not vaccinating their children, and then you have, you know, outbreaks of the measles. I mean, it's really important. I'm not 100% convinced that, like, the anti-vax thing is a function of bad science. But, <laughs> no, um, bad, not being able to public, access the good science. Um, information, perhaps. But I, I am I am 100% convinced that something like the Public Library of Science uh, Plus One is a gr- an amazing resource that I use. I use, um, well, like SSRN mm-hmm. um, or... Um, 
yeah, there's a huge number of like preprint exchanges in just about every academic academic discipline. Um, and the weird thing is, as a journalist, I know that whenever there's a interesting paper, all I need to do is email the author of the mm -hmm. paper, and they will send it to me because they can under yeah. their contract terms. Mm -hmm. And yeah. and yet, but you somehow, like, if I'm not a journalist, if I'm actually someone who wants to work with science and improve science, and that's harder and I need to have these insanely expensive subscriptions, which effectively marginalizes any scientist who isn't working in the sort of Western interlibrary system. And even in the West, I read the staggering statistic that the U U.S. taxpayers pay about $140 billion a year in subsidizing research that they don't have access to. That is just... That's shocking. Oh, you mean the taxpayers don't have access to? Yeah, well, that we don't yeah. have access yeah. to. Yeah, because, yeah. I mean, it might be that you know the chairman of the research department <laughs> has, has access. access to it, but yeah, Joe Public does not. Mm -hmm. And and it's and I think I think one of the things we're learning learning is that there's no there's a lot of um, unintended consequences, I guess, to walling off this information, which people never really thought about back in the day. Like, there's on some level. A lot of this research, especially when it comes to medicine, is very hard to read and understand, and it uses a bunch of words that no one understands. And you're like, why would a normal person even want to be able to read this? Mm -hmm. But I think we're increasingly learning that these things are... It's actually not as hard to understand as you might think, a and, lot of these papers. And plus, as, as uh, public university systems are under you know financial pressure right now, it's you're asking them essentially to pay twice, to pay for things that they've created right. themselves. I mean, it's it's it doesn't seem and, correct. And, and that's exactly it, is that even though, yes, most universities are paying these fees and then that is allowing people to have access, like they shouldn't have to be paying. That yeah. money could be better spent to, honestly, that money could be better spent on the people who are actually doing the research. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I think the UC thing also needs to be understood as an overall shift, right? It is one of the largest uh, purchasing systems across the United States in terms of an academic institution. But this comes actually right on the heels of a decision in the European Union to make a recommendation that all science published in the EU has to be open access by 2020. So there, this is the bells are tolling for the industry is, is how I would read this. I think that this is a harbinger of thing to come. Do we think that... Um that amazing Russian woman who created Sci-Hub, you know, what was it, like 15 years ago? And and she was working with, like, Aaron Swartz, I think, back in the day. It's possible, yeah. To, like, you know, basically download all scientific papers and start mirroring them in, like, you know, countries with weak copyright laws and just say, like, here, come and read them. Um, A lot of people do. Do you think that, yeah, and, th and those libraries, like, there are now dozens of them and you can you know and obviously people like Elsevier are trying to shut them down because they're incredibly illegal but mm -hmm. they're not having a lot of success and I wonder whether at some point you just they just have to sort of say okay well the facts on the ground are that a lot of this if not all of this information is public anyway thanks to the internet that's an interesting question I, you know, it, I was just thinking, why is it that, that they've had such a difficulty shutting this down when the music industry was able to get piracy under control in a very different way? And I think it's because of the access models, right? If you're looking at paying $40, $100 per article, you know, the competitive access is not the same as paying $1.99 on iTunes, right? Exactly. They, it feels as though there's a market solution here, potentially, but I, the publishing I think, I think industry isn't willing to engage with it, their 37% profit margin. <laughs> the success I mean, of Spotify is, not, is, is, is proof that people are actually okay paying for music. It's not that the 
you know, Napster and, and the free music went away. If you want to download just, yeah. any song on in the world, you can find it and you can do that. But it's just too much of a pain in the ass. Right. It's so much easier to just do it legally. And in, in the case of music, there are artists that are being rewarded and compensated. And most people would agree that artists should be compensated somewhat. But in the case of Elsevier, it's like, who's making the money here? It just seems like rent-seeking. Yeah. So it, it's right. sort of easier to yeah. understand why you'd want it to go away. Yeah, and there's also such an interesting con- contrast, I'll say again, to what's going on in journalism right now where it seems like everything went free for a while and now people are pulling back behind a paywall. But for some reason, to me, maybe because I am a journalist, it seems like that's fine. <laughs> well, to me, that, <laughs> But to me, that is different, though. Yeah. Because well, it's t- the same as the music. It's, yeah, well, it's yeah, compensating the, the creator. The exactly. It's, and it's not government-backed. Yeah, you know, yeah. So, yeah. If the government wants to pay me to commit journalism, that's problematic. But for a, whole, a whole other reason. And, you know, if you work for the BBC, that's fine. Yeah. yeah. I do feel a little bad for the humanities, though. All the focus has really been on open yeah. science. That's true. And it does make me wonder about, you know, I was reading that what, the number of historians has dropped, or people seeking history, PhDs, has dropped something by 45% in the last few years, which seems concerning. And just as a, a matter of how we understand the world, uh, certainly as a Wikipedian, it concerns me. Um, but with all the focus on on open access being really around open science, I wonder what sort of the unintended consequences of that is for the humanities. Also, I feel the history papers would be much more readable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, historians are generally the best writers in, in the academy, I yeah. think. Just telling stories. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. But let's talk about the real money, which is the the multi-gazillion dollar Facebook money, because we did talk about Facebook last week, and then they went and committed a whole bunch of news, so now we have to talk about Facebook <laughs> again, because this is a big thing. Um Mark Zuckerberg, there was a little mini scandal. There's always a mini scandal at Facebook. And there was a little mini scandal about how when people were using um, their phones for two-factor authentication to make sure that Facebook was secure, suddenly um, those phone numbers, they had had to be available to all of your friends, whether you liked it or not. And they were like being used as phone numbers rather than just a little you know, security device. And amazingly... The next thing you know, you get like this 3,200-word blog post from Mark Zuckerberg going, we are pivoting the entire company to privacy, and all of your status updates are going to evaporate unless you try and make them permanent, and we are really going to be a much more privacy-focused um, like group messaging company, basically, with end-to-end encryption on everything, and what do we make of this? Well, because it's just so odd because up until, you know, like the day before, Facebook's whole thing is like, we're connecting the world. We're making the world, you know, more open. And you're like, now they're like, wait about that. (laughs) (laughs) And so it does make you also wonder like how real this is. I mean, part of it they had in the works already. Because part of the thing he said in his 3,200 word blog post was how he wanted to make it easier to message people who are using Instagram or WhatsApp or Facebook, you know, whatever platform you're on. It's super and this easy. is where they've been working on that for a while. And this That's is where Elizabeth Warren comes in, because this is a way of basically 
changing the facts on the ground. If you if you build them all on the same, if they're just different like skins on the same messaging back end, it basically makes it impossible at that point to break up Facebook and to say, no, you have to spin off Instagram, you have to spin off WhatsApp, because they're all basically the same service. Right. And that's what he's really afraid of. And that's what Elizabeth Warren has now said that she... Yes, wants to do. on Friday, as as we were heading in to talk, <laughs> she published a blog post on Medium sort of outlining how she wants to break up the big, big tech companies defined, and, I think, as $25 billion in revenue and above. As a bold statement and a policy prescription. But look, I just got back from Europe and the this is actually what the German regulators have have said. They said this about two, two or three weeks ago, is that they were potentially considering blocking to the, I don't know what regulatory, regulatory authority they have there, but potentially considering trying to block this integration of these three messaging platforms for anti-competitive purposes. I mean, as long as they're all owned by the same company, it's anti-competitive anyway, right? So the only reason to block the integration would be with an eye to eventually breaking up the company. Or am I wrong about that? I am not an expert in antitrust law. I, I you know, the definition of anti-competition in this country has tended to revolve around pricing models. And certainly I think that's usually the argument about why these companies don't fall under sort of anti-competitive oversight. But then again, it might also be because we don't really just do antitrust anymore <laughs> in this country. But uh, I mean, I, I'm not totally sure what the German uh, rationale was. But I, I will say that when I saw this yesterday, my or not yesterday, when I saw this when this came out, my first response was, well, that puts a huge target on encryption again, right? It raises the specter of the crypto wars all over again, which we just sort of had a conversation about two years ago, and it sort of died down. And now I think it'll come right back. Because if you have, what is it? I don't know their total user base across those three platforms. But if you have, say, a third of the world, the minimum on an EDE and an encryption platform in which law enforcement is now going to be wondering about what's going on in those sort of dark pipes, it, it makes me think that the very next conversation is going to be, all right, we need backdoors and encryption again, which has huge implications for all sorts of different sort of web security, commerce, and the like. And Casey Newton, I think, mentioned in his newsletter that um, particularly on WhatsApp, a lot of bad stuff kind of happens behind behind these encrypted walls and, in, you know, like fake news and other bad yeah. Bad stuff. It's seen um, as an it, accelerant. I think it was um, WhatsApp was was pointed to as one of the uh, messaging yes. platforms that was responsible for the deaths of something like two dozen people in India recently. Right. So there is sort of a balance that a company like Facebook has to strike between keeping information private and then you know protecting. It's people. a little bit of a cop out on one level. Like when Mark Zuckerberg got it quite rightly in the neck about the way the use of Facebook to foment, you know, effectively genocide in Myanmar, um, basically what they were saying, what everyone was saying, which was correct, was like, there was a whole bunch of activity going on in Myanmar um, on Facebook, which Facebook knew about, and it was, you know, leading to lots of people getting killed, and Facebook should have done something to prevent that. And then this move seems to me on one level to be like, oh, well, if we end-to-end encrypt everything, we just won't know what people are saying to each other, so it's not our problem anymore. Yeah, and I, I think this is one of those issues that we are simply never going to solve. It is always going to be moving back and forth between 
the desire for people to have more privacy and then the fact that when you give people more privacy, some people are going to use that to do very bad things Mm -hmm. and governments are going to be concerned about that. You're obviously going to get some countries that are probably going to simply say there is no Facebook if you're going to do this. But then you're also, I mean, even countries like the United States are going to be very concerned about this. And I just don't think we're ever going to solve this. The other thing I was thinking was um, Facebook, the news feed itself, they're they're seeing sort of a decline. And this is sort of like... Like people are using... It's it's a smaller and smaller part of what Facebook does. exactly. And so Facebook now with this announcement, like they're making it sound like it's about privacy, blah, blah, blah. But what it's really about is Facebook leaning into where the market is going. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to compete with, say, Apple's iMessage, which is really becoming like a social network on its own where you're talking with your friends and you're and you're you're sending pictures and gifs and sometimes even payments and um and you feel like it's private like I don't have any concerns about using Apple iMessage I'm not worried that I'm going to see an ad for something I'm talking well, about well I think and this, that you know Facebook trying to Lean into where things are this going. Is Facebook building WeChat. It is. Yeah, yeah. And, that's, and that's exactly <laughs> it. It's Tencent that I think they're really looking at. Uh-huh. They they want to get more into payments. They want to get more into commerce. I mean, they've been saying mm-hmm. that for years. And honestly, it kind of does make sense. Well, because right now, if you actually, I mean, this is, I have I actually have not been on Facebook in more than a year. But the the product experience last I recall was so diffuse, right? Mm-hmm. In terms of it had sort of markets over here, and it mm-hmm. had newsfeed over here, and it had sort of events over there. And it seems like this is actually just a way to push everyone into an integrated platform. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are, are you more active on WeChat? Because it seems to me, because I'm not, and I... I'm like, not on WeChat. I, I kind of I kind of feel like WeChat is this kind of nirvana that Mark Zuckerberg looks at of, like, imagine if I could get even, you know, 20% of the way to WeChat. Are we going to get social The way that people too? live on... Exactly. <laughs> but you see, but then that's the thing, right? Is that you, that you can't... And won't actually genuinely have privacy well, this is the on Facebook thing. because the entire Facebook business model is based on Facebook knowing exactly who you are, knowing exactly what website you visited and being able to target things incredibly narrowly at you. And that's not going away because that's how they make all of their money. Well, this is the amazing thing to me, right? So I said I haven't been on Facebook in more than a year. You know, most companies send you out those reminder emails like, hey, we miss you, Catherine, come back. I haven't gotten a single reminder email from Facebook to sign back in because they don't need me to. Right. You they are still, still no yeah. Everything and they about are, me. They still know everything about you, and they are still serving you ads. Yes. Because the people think that, you know, the ads are just the ads in newsfeed and the sponsored posts in Instagram, and it's not. It's, it follow you, follows you all around the web. And also the number of people I know who are very proudly patting themselves on the back for quitting Facebook and are still on Instagram every day. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this is cognitive disconnect there. There was a wonderful, I think I saw this on Twitter. The New York Times had some article about Facebook. And in the comments section, a man wrote in saying he never goes on Facebook and he won't use it. La, la, la. Best own ever. (laughs) And then his wife commented. Well, honey, <laughs> I tell you all the time about so and so's getting married, or so and so, you know, went on a trip here and there, and that all that information's coming from Facebook, so you can't escape it publicly. <laughs> the wife owning the husband. It's, it's this the suggests New- that maybe we don't want privacy. <laughs> no, I'm telling you, like the, the the New York Times comment section is the new Facebook. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. 
You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but... I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's have a numbers round. I, th- I think it's time for some numbers. Okay. What's your number, Emily? My, my number is 30%. It is the share of Republican women who said gender discrimination is not is a serious problem. So the only 30% of Republican women said in the survey that HuffPost and Yahoo, my my companies, sponsored, and that's compared with 74% of Democratic women. So I wrote a, a story about it. I called up the Republican women and I said, why don't you think gender discrimination is a serious problem? And they basically told me that while they think it's a problem when women are discriminated against, it's the kind of problem that we can just like deal with on our own. We women? Or we, we as a society? We women. Women individually, like, they just need to be strong and be tough and just that's it. Um, and it was, a, it was a really striking difference. The Democratic women that I spoke to were more like, we need laws, we need rules and regulations, and it's it's hard out there for women. And I read studies about it. But um, the Republican women are sort of more reflective of that kind of, like, pull yourself up by the bootstraps kind of mentality. And um, it was just a really interesting perspective to me because it's like so everyone sees the problem. They're saying that it exists, but it's not a problem, basically. Yeah, it exists, but it's not a serious problem. It's it's just like it's or, the air you breathe and you just have to – like it's traffic going to work. Like you just have to sit in the traffic. You just my, have to wor- figure it out yourself. And my guess is, yeah, it's the idea that they would say, yes, this is a problem, but this is not a problem we need to address with public policy. Yes, they said – a, a couple of them I spoke to said, you know, we have laws. The laws work. And I was like – don't work, though. <laughs> I write about how they don't work, you know. Um, yeah, exactly. They think there's laws in place and, you know, you got to stand up for yourself. That's just like straight end. up internalized oppression. I think that's what it is. Yeah. It's interesting. So wow. they see it, but they don't see it as a problem. It's just a mind shift. A mind Catherine, shift. what's your number? My number is 27. 27 is the number of female journalists currently imprisoned around the world. Out of 334 journalists who are currently in prison today, 8% of them are women, which is an increase from 3% five years ago. I don't know if that reflects better gender equity in journalism <laughs> or... Yay, we're the glass we're, we're, we're achieving equality in imprisoned journalism. Um, but uh, those, those women are held essentially by nine countries, uh, and there are seven in prison in Iran, seven in China, followed by four in Turkey, which is the world's largest jailer of journalists. And so on... This month of uh, Women's Month, I just thought that that was a good number for us to reflect on. How's How's Wikipedia doing in Turkey? I know that like there was a lot of sort of weird Erdogan crackdowns on Twitters and the like. We are not currently available in Turkey. It is one of two countries in which you cannot access Wikipedia. We have been blocked since April of 2017. 
Press freedom is so bad in Turkey that you actually have people who rely on Sputnik News, which is like basically an arm of the Russian government. But it is yet to talk about what is going on in Turkey because it's more reliable than anything you can get in Turkey. So, all right. So I need to ask if Turkey is one, what's the other one? Uh, The other place we're blocked? Yeah. Mm -hmm. China. Yeah, we've been blocked in Turkey because we refuse to censor content, which is our, we don't take down content for political reasons. We refuse, it's just a general policy of ours. And so the Turkish government said goodbye. Wow. Um, Anna. So, yeah. So I, I thought I'd bring in a Wikipedia related article. Okay. <laughs> so it's 2.5 million. And this may have changed, but yeah. so there's one guy <laughs> who was responsible for 2.5 million what? edits. Yeah, this guy, Stephen Pruitt. He's this guy from Virginia. He's lovely. <laughs> yeah, he, you know, it was interesting. I was when I was reading the article, he sounds like a very nice person. Mm-hmm. Like, and he even was like part of a project to get more coverage of women. Mm-hmm. So I was like, it was actually kind of a nice story. You know, I'd, I'd wow. recommend looking him up, Stephen Pruitt. What does he What does he do for a living? He works for the government. Mm-hmm. He like um, I think customs enforcement or something. Wow. So yeah. So what is this like? A side thing for him? Like, just in his spare time, he makes two and a half million edits to Wikipedia? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people who edit at that volume uh, do so with really systematic ways. So they have sort of bots that they use to track pages, and they make sort of micro-edits that are really about governing the platform itself at scale. Um, You know, reverting vandalism is... Mm -hmm. That stuff happens every single day on Wikipedia, and so if you're perhaps the person running a bot on that, that all counts to your total. So it's a lot of edits, though. I think I read somewhere that... It represents about a. Th- he's edited on about a third. Was that the number of I all see. English Wikipedia articles? Wow. And as I said, there are five and a half million of them. <laughs> so. Actually, yeah, sounds yeah. really fun to edit Wikipedia. Articles. It is so much fun. I really enjoy it. Kind of want to. Um. Yeah. <laughs> Did you? So I, I have done it. Although I don't have. You have. I don't have the permissions to publish a page. You need to be a special person. To be able to publish you a page, you should have permission to publish a page. <laughs> you should, and nominate him. Yeah. Well, it just means that you need to edit more, so that I need to your, edit pa- more. your your publishing can go through. I'm going to talk about everyone's favorite Minotaur this week, which is Lyft. Do you remember the Minotaurs? They were the things which I, I've decided I've, I've I mean, decided personally but. to coin a term, <laughs> which is because people keep on talking about unicorns, which is the um, um, yeah. which is the companies who are worth a billion dollars, which is what you would be if you were private. Um, <laughs> I've decided to coin this new term, which I, I did a little project on Axios about this, called the Minotaurs, which is not the companies which are worth a billion dollars, but the companies which have raised a billion dollars mm-hmm. in equity capital, which is an amazing amount of money. Um, and the one that's going public, which we know about because they filed their S1, is Lyft. And my number is $911 million, which is the amount of money they lost in 2018. Uh. And I'm like, how is it even possible to lose $911 million in one year? And yet, we're going to see the Uber numbers pretty soon, and they're going to be even bigger. The amount of money that is possible for a private company to lose is bigger than it has ever been in the history of the world. (laughs) Seems bad. (laughs) Seems bad? Yeah, (laughs) that's my analysis. It's, it's, you know, subsidized cart rides for all of us. (laughs) (laughs) What could possibly go wrong? Um, Climate? So yeah, <laughs> and so apparently, if you lose that much money, you're worth twenty billion dollars. How is that right? I could lose money. I lose money every day. <laughs> I mean, not professionally. <laughs> Sadly, we are all just not growing at the same rate as <laughs> lifters. <laughs> 
So, Catherine, we are going to talk to you even more on Slate Plus about the ways that Wikipedia is used by for-profit companies to make lots of money, which is fascinating. So it's going to sound a bit like this. Yeah, I've seen valuations range anywhere from 10 to $20 billion. So, but we're not, to be we're broken not, up. We're not vesting anytime <laughs> soon. So. <laughs> for everyone else, thank you very much for listening to Slate Money. Thank you very much to Catherine Mayer for coming in. Thank you very, very much to Max Jacob, who has been a magnificent producer here around these parts for these, you know, a certain amount of time and is now leaving us going to become the head of the world somewhere in midtown manhattan at nbc he's got this amazing job so well done max congratulations we will be very sorry to hear you see you leave slate but you're going to be rocking it elsewhere um and you're all beautiful people and I will continue to listen to the show, which is the best do, compliment I think I can make. Do continue so. to listen. If you, email if, us. If Max is listening to the show, he will be sending us email on slatemoney at slate.com, and we'll be reading it, and we'll be like, Max, you can't leave us, can you? Um, and I have to say as well, if you've been listening to the Tuesday shows on Slate Money Travel, we have the best guest ever on Slate Money, Slate Money Travel. Who's that? Who is? Catherine Marr. <laughs> Catherine Ma is going to be how how yeah you travel a lot. I do travel. That's basically a lot. what you do is you travel. So I pay gonna, rent in San Francisco and I live on a plane. It's a terrible deal. It's um, we're going to talk to Catherine a bit more about that on Sleep Money Travel on Tuesday. And so yeah, with all of that, thank you very much for listening, and we will be back next week on Sleep Money. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.